Jesus Christ. And we do confess that he is Lord. And we come to glorify our great God, God the Father, through him. And we pray for the anointing and blessing of your spirit, so that in all that we do in this time of worship, we will glorify our great God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. His name is wonderful. May be seated. A confession of faith is from the Nicene Creed. Let us confess our faith together. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, 
by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let us pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And our Father, we give you praise, the one who dwells in heaven. You dwell in a high and holy place. And yet you have told us you dwell with those who are contrite in spirit. So ever high and far away you may be, so we know that you to be very present with us, indeed, within our very own hearts. We pray that we will honor you this morning in our worship through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, our Father, and give you thanks for your kingdom that came by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for his second coming, in which he will consummate his kingdom. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, that we will serve your kingdom well here upon this earth. We will demonstrate by our lives what it is to have Jesus Christ as our king, even as we must live in this world. We pray, our Father, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that we will do your will. We pray that you would give us such a mind that you would continue to work in us by your Holy Spirit to sanctify us so that our very thoughts, our, our wills are in keeping with your will. We pray, our Father, for you to give to us our daily bread and give you thanks for your continual provision of all that we need for our bodies, for food, for shelter, for clothing, of health care. Indeed, our Father, we pray that we do not abuse uh, the many blessings that you pour out in your provisions for us, but use them wisely. And indeed, we pray, our Father, that you would use us to give freely and generously to others, that we would be means by which you provide to others their daily bread. We pray that you would forgive our debts we thank you for that forgiveness that we have received in Jesus Christ once and for all. 
Our debts are many. Our debts would continue to accumulate were it not for that work by Jesus Christ, in which on that cross he has removed our debts. You've not merely forgiven them, they have been erased. There's nothing upon the register that shows our sins, our debts. How wondrous this is, because we know that we continue to sin, continue to transgress your law. And yet in Jesus Christ, they have gone. They are forgotten. Father, all the more then, how could it be that we would hold resentments, be unforgiving of those who somehow have offended us, cause us to be like our Heavenly Father, who is merciful beyond our imagination, cause us to be people of mercy to our neighbors. We pray that we not be led into temptation. You know our weaknesses. We pray for your protection of us from the lures, the temptations of this world. We pray that you would protect us from the evil one who ever seeks uh, to draw us away from you. And our Father, we make these petitions before you, acknowledging that to you belongs the kingdom and the power to carry out your will, acknowledging that we were created, that all of creation exists for that purpose to glorify you. We make this prayer in Christ's name. Amen.
may be seated. I'll invite you to uh, turn with me to the last chapter of Hebrews, chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. You'll also find the text uh, as an insert in your bulletin as well. Our author is now uh, starting to wrap up his letter, and he gives a, a series of practical instructions or, or commandments of what the, uh, his readers need to be doing. And this morning, we're going to be looking at five of them uh, in our six verses. And what this chapter does is it gives us uh, an idea of what our author thinks is important for how his readers were to be living in the kingdom of God in the community in which they live. So we're going to take each one and then apply each one to ourselves. So let's look at verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Now this would make a great slogan for the city that I came from, Philadelphia, because literally that word brotherly love is Philadelphia. And that verse is saying, Philadelphia, let it continue. Now, this love to keep going, to continue, is specifically love that is a family love. It's not the one that's usually used, called agape love. That kind of love is given indiscriminately. It is given without condition. This love is love that is based on a family relationship. We are told to agape love, to love our neighbors. But we are also commanded here to show a family love to our sisters and brothers in Christ. And this is especially needed for these readers in times of sufferings, particularly through the persecution that they're going through. He had noted back in chapter 12, he was concerned that there were cracks in the, in the unity of the church, he had told them that they should strive for peace, indicating that they're having little problems with that peace and unity. That they need to be careful not to let the root of bitterness spring up. So just as they must keep faith, he's been telling them all through that letter, they need to keep faith through adversity. He's saying you've got to keep up the brotherly love. That is also necessary to sustain them through difficult times. Now this instruction certainly is uh, needful for today. I don't think I have to convince you that we are living in uh, turbulent times that, that test our love for one another. You know, just trying to think about this offhand, and okay, well, there's the, the COVID pandemic, and it pits those whom we must all wear masks versus don't take away my freedom. There have been the, the protests over the past year which have pitted well, justice for blacks versus don't endanger law and property. There are the camps of how can any Christian vote for a Democrat versus how can any Christian support bad behavior. Now I could have gone on with more topics but, um, you know, even I was thinking in this, you know, it's 
already we'd probably start getting a little bit fidgety and, and I tell you, just even trying to figure out how to say, label kind of each camp in a way that's not going to be offensive and get people upset was a very difficult thing to do. Now, look, I feel I have the same problem with this area. When I think of any of these controversies, I want to argue. I want to object. I want the other side to listen to me. I want them to agree with me. And I want them to advocate for my cause. Well, it's brotherly love that keeps me in check. It says, brotherly love says what our moms would say to us. We're family. We stick together no matter what. Now, brotherly love cannot make each family member agree, but it should make each family member see the best in each other, not to judge each other's faith based upon how we might fall or on, on any political or social issue. And if brotherly love is really deep, really doing its work, it'll actually lead each family member to listen to each other. Now let's go to the next instruction, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Okay, our author's here, he's moving outside the family, or, or at least he's moving outside of the local family. These strangers he may have in mind could be traveling evangelists uh, that, that would go through the uh, uh, through the empire, actually, going from community to community. But he probably has in mind as well, he's thinking anyone who is traveling through. And this kind of a hospitality, of providing lodging for the stranger, is actually a virtue that was highly held in honor in the ancient world, whether you were a Christian, whether you were Jewish, whether you were just a pagan. Now, what seems odd in here is having our author reason this out by saying, well, you might be attaining, entertaining angels. And what makes him bring that up? Well, probably because of the high status or value or obsession, really, that his readers were having with angels. Do you remember the very first issue that he brought up way back in chapter 1? It was showing how Jesus was superior to angels. I mean, he spent more than a chapter uh, demonstrating that. Okay. And so they, they've got this, this mindset all focused on that, and he's taking advantage of it. But when he speaks of some who have entertained angels, probably based on his patterns all the way through the letter, he wants them to be thinking of Old Testament characters like, like Abraham and Sarah who entertained angels who were on their way to Sodom, or like Lot, who entertained those same angels when they came to Sodom. But the point that he's trying, I think, bring out on here, and by bringing up angels, because they would have highly regarded them and honored them, he's just saying, treat every guest as a special guest. Every stranger who comes through ought to be honored, ought to be seen as someone who has come to you from the Lord. Now, I suppose, you know, thinking about this, all of us 
should consider, we'll consider ourselves hospitable. I mean, I do. I, I think when I talk about this church, I mean, I just brag about this church. I said, you know, churches talk about being friendly. This is a friendly church. Okay. And uh, so we're, uh, we're likable people. We're, we're, we're friendly to visitors. And, and I know that most of you, if not all of you, you, you invite people over to your homes, you invite them out. You, you take time with people. But I want you to think now for a moment. Those whom you have had into your home or you have taken out. Now, I know you've got to go a long ways back because of COVID. You've got to go about a year back. But try to think. Who were they? Most likely friends. Or they might be new neighbors who seem nice and you want to get to know them. Now, what our text wants us, our reader is thinking of who he wants us to be hospitable to are strangers in every sense of the word. People we do not know well. People who may not be like us. And in particular, what he has in mind here are people, because they're strangers, because they're new, they don't know anyone. They don't have ready-made connections. Now we know, or probably most of us know who Jesus would say we're to invite over. By the way, Jesus would the most dangerous person to ever invite over to your house. Here's one fellow who invited Jesus over to his house, and here's what he says to him. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. And when I read something like this, what Jesus has said, or just hear what our author has said, I mean, it's, it's uncomfortable. But I think the point of our author, I think the, the point of Jesus is this. It is easy to be hospitable to people we feel comfortable with. But do we make a list of people when we're thinking about whom we're going to invite over and, and so on? Do we make a list of people whom we think this person really could use hospitality precisely because they don't seem to have other friends or, or have many resources? Do we pray about who could use that phone call other than the friends that we know? Or to send a note to let them know we're thinking of them other than uh, the friend who already knows us. You know, people can feel a stranger in their own community. They can feel a stranger in our own church. Are you aware of them? And so pray about this to the Lord. What stranger to you would he have you show hospitality to all right, let's go to number three in the third verse. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. 
Now, back in chapter 10, our author had already commended his readers, actually, for this very uh, action. Let me read it to you. He says, recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you know that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, I went over the the book of of Acts, looking at every time the word prison or prisoner uh, exists, there's 20 references. Every single one is that of a believer, of a Christian believer being placed in prison. Now, what Acts demonstrates, what our letter, our book here demonstrates, and really what most of the New Testament demonstrates, is that persecution was a way of life for the early church. And so it was all the more necessary for believers to come alongside each other so that those who are afflicted do not feel isolated. Now, the reason for this doctrine is that all, I mean, I'm sorry, the reason for this is the doctrine that all Christians are members of one body. We're told in Romans 12, 5, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And so we have an obligation to care for one another. Now, I want you to understand that this concept of being members of one body, it's not an, a mere analogy. We are not like members of one body. We are members of one body with Jesus Christ, our head. We are united to Christ, who is our head, by the Holy Spirit. And in Christ, by that Holy Spirit, we are united to one another. And we, we may feel, or we, we more likely don't feel that union, but the union exists nonetheless. And because that union exists, we have an obligation to care for one another. Now, I think there are two ways in which we can be applying this instruction today. One is to our worldwide church family. Much of the, of many of our brothers and sisters in the Lord in other parts of the world are really suffering. Let me read two samples to you. And this is taken from, a, from an article on the most dangerous countries for Christians. Here's the first one. Being discovered as a Christian is a death sentence in North Korea. If you are not killed instantly, you will be taken to a labor camp as a political criminal. These inhumane prisons have horrific conditions, and few believers make it out alive. Everyone in your family will share the same punishment. Kim Jong-un is reported to have expanded a system of prison camps in which an estimated 50,000 to 70,000 Christians are currently in prison. And then here's a sample from an Islamic country. If a Christian's family discovers they have converted, 
their family, clan, or tribe has to save its honor by disowning the believer or even killing them. Christians from a Muslim background can also be sectioned in a psychiatric hospital because leaving Islam is considered a sign of insanity. Now, in cases like these, I mean, really, the most that we can do very oftentimes is just is to pray for them, but we need to be praying for them. And we would also do well to take the time to research the persecution in these, in these countries, learn ways perhaps in which we can encourage our fellow believers. Because, again, we can't stop the suffering perhaps, but what they really need to know is that they have brothers and sisters who have not forgotten them, who are praying for them so that they do not feel alone. And we also need to be thinking of, quite honestly, the growing hostility in our own country toward those who uphold the gospel and uphold biblical ethics. Now, we live, okay, we live in, a, in, a, in a safe place here. Okay? But there are churches... There are Christians in other areas of our country who have been sued, who have been fired from their jobs, who have been fined for upholding their beliefs. So along with prayer, we need to be praying for them, but we need to be thinking of other avenues for ways in which we can support them. There are those whom we can support by writing them or publicly uh, supporting them in ways so that they feel that they're not alone. We can support organizations uh, that uh, provide legal support for them. Again, what matters is we need to let our brothers and sisters who are suffering know they're not alone, they are not forgotten. All right, let's move to number four. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God would judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, I gather there must have been some problem in this area. Our author already had expressed this concern in the previous chapter, in verse 16, in which he says, no one is is to be sexually immoral. The Apostle Paul In his letters, he had to give warning to the believers in Corinth about this same issue. And he specifically brings up about engaging prostitutes. So for our author's readers, again, they're kind of like us. They're like those, they grew up in a Jewish culture, but in the midst of a larger pagan Gentile culture. And so they too experienced the same temptations and pressure to abandon the teachings of the Mosaic law. And now that they have become believers, become Christians, they might have added the same bizarre twist that some of the believers in Corinth did. There were Corinth believers who had rationalized them, well, we've now become spiritual. And now that I am, we are spiritual, well, we can cast off the old restraints on the physical, on sex. We're not bound by the law. So what we do with our bodies do not affect our spirits. Now our author, for him, 
The answer to this is very simple. God will judge such behavior. It's not complicated. Do not commit adultery. Do not engage in sex outside marriage. That is the definition of sexual immorality. And all attempts to rationalize such behavior, well, it's just that. It's rationalizing away sinful behavior. And God will not be mocked. Now, it's easy enough to see how to apply this lesson in our lifetime. We've been experiencing a shift in cultural morals that have made the biblical teachings that we grew up with is, is just outmoded. Our culture, in essence, has returned to the pagan culture of the Roman Empire. And sexual immorality of all forms is now accepted as natural and even good behavior. And the Judaic Christian code that we grew up with is now rejected. It's, it's unnatural. It's dysfunctional. It is even bad behavior. It is something that a person needs to be cured of. And so the challenge for us today is to maintain the biblical standards on marriage. It is between one man and one woman. And sex outside this marriage bond is sin. And even within marriage, each spouse is to be respected physically. Every point that I've just mentioned is under attack today. And the younger generation will be increasingly pressured to conform. Indeed, if we're going to experience persecution today, it most likely it's going to be over these issues, that we uphold them. But we've got to keep before us what matters. And what matters is to fear God rather than man. All right, let's go to our fifth instruction. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6 kind of really explains a little more fully what's being said here. He writes, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Now, as we know, our author has been concerned all along that pressures and persecution would lead his people away from the faith. Well, here he's also noting that the love of money can do the same. And the antidote is contentment. What leads to the love of money is worry. We begin to worry. Will we have enough to meet our bills? Will we have enough to maintain our standard of living? Will we have enough to weather the political economic storms? Will we have enough 
And it just kind of keeps going on and on and on. Once we give in to these worries, they come really out of discontent. Discontent with our circumstances. And once we give in to that, then we inevitably look to having more money as our salvation. And once we look to money as our salvation, money becomes our God. And once it becomes our God, it owns us. Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But what that discontent with circumstances, and I'm never quite sure we have enough, really reveals is discontent with God. See, that's why our author quotes the scripture. He's turning his readers to trusting in God. That first word there, those were God's words to Joshua when Joshua was about to lead his people uh, across the Jordan into a hostile land. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The other words there are taken from the psalmist in Psalm 118.6. And what our author is, is indicating is, look, what you need to know is this that the promise of your God is that he is with you and that's secure. You can hold on to that. That's a much greater security than money which can perish. And God, he has already demonstrated back in chapter 11, has proved himself faithful to the saints of old. He will prove himself faithful to you. So let's turn to ourselves. How are you feeling about your financial security. Does the recent political change have you worried? Have you checked in with your financial advisor recently? Now, there is a balance to maintain. We're not to love money, and yet Scripture also teaches good stewardship. If you go to Proverbs, Proverbs teaches us to work hard, to save up for hard times, Look to the ant, O sluggard. And the wise man is one who saves up for the future. But then you go to the Gospels, and you got Jesus condemning a rich man whom he calls a fool because he builds these extra storehouses for that very purpose. And then he dies that night. So it keeps coming back to our attitude about money. Do you love money? Now, don't be quick to deny it, okay? This is something we have to take time to examine our hearts about. And one test is how much, how much do we worry about keeping it, holding on to it? It is wise to protect one's investments, okay? We need to be as prepared as well as we can be for, for the future, but nothing can be perfectly secured. Do you trust God with your future? Can you be content in whatever circumstance you find yourself? See, that's the issue here. Do you trust that whatever happens, whatever happens, God has you? That God will work all things for your good. 
Now, one test for this may be, it might seem counterintuitive, but here's a good test. How generous are you? Proverbs 11.24 says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. You see, one can, now look, one can unwisely give. That can happen. But the, the fault for most of us is that we hold on too tightly to what we have. And this is, this is true of money, but it's true of, of all possessions that we have, including our time. When we give, what do we give? Well, we tend to give what we can spare, what we no longer value. What are we willing to give precisely because we value it highly? Well, looking back over these five instructions, there's one common trait, at least I saw one common trait among them all. You really got to work at this stuff. They require conscious effort. I mean, either our natural inclinations, you know, are in a different direction, or then you got all the pressures of our culture that makes them even more challenging to carry out. I mean, it's difficult enough already in any family, and particularly in a church family, to love everybody. Okay. Just the difference that you have in personalities. Uh, the, just our own little sinful tendencies. But you add to that the difficulties about, again, what I was talking about earlier, about how we respond to all these political and social turbulence of our days. And that difficulty just grows exponentially. Well, the same is true for hospitality. See, it's hard enough to keep thinking about everybody whom I got to show hospitality to. But what about particularly those neighbors who are I mean, they're really hostile neighbors. Okay. Or you think about uh, being concerned for everybody, for, for our brothers and sisters in, in China or in one of the Middle Eastern countries or in North Korea. And it's so hard right now to keep up with what's going on just in my own life. Okay. But then now you've got more pressures happening in this world and in our own country even within our own community. You get to sexual morals. I really don't even want to talk about the subject. I don't want to read about it. I don't want to see anything in there. I just don't want to. And then this, this thing of being a good, this balance, you know, trying to be a good steward, but don't love money, don't hold on to it. That, to me, that's about as easy as walking a tightrope. It's tough. But self-examination is what we need to be doing all the time. We're never going to reach that time in which I've got it done. It's covered. I don't, I don't have any problems in this area anymore. We never arrive. We never reach a point that we can assume that we have mastered the art of living righteously before God. Always remember it's our own hearts are the most difficult to discern. Now, life in the kingdom of God is always challenging. And it's always challenging because we have to live it in this world. Okay. Again, all the more reason then, 
It has to be consciously lived. Because we have to fight off the influence, that subtle influence of the world, while at the exact same time be a witness to the world for what it is to live in the kingdom. It's tough. But it is a life worth living. Indeed, it is an abundant life given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a life that is to be lived, if it's going to be lived, in the light of the gospel. Okay? We live it knowing that we, we already belong to the family of God. A God who will never leave us, who will never forsake us. That we belong to our brother, Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, who understands our weakness, who is sympathetic towards us. We live it knowing that we have an eternal inheritance resting not in how well we're going to do this, not in our works, but in the all-sufficient work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We give you thanks, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, and the light that he lived in perfect righteousness. And because he lived it, he has made the perfect sacrifice for us. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit, and by your Spirit, may we continue to be sanctified, continue to be conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might live and show this world what it is, to live a life that glorifies you, that honors the kingdom in which we live and belong. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing together. May the mind of Christ my Savior. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, 
by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's go outside.